you're listening to a message from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix that creates space for people to practice the ways of Jesus together. Amen. Thanks, Aaron. Good evening, Kaleo. Good to see you all. As always, love being here, love being together, love sharing this space with one another as we, I don't know, join always in the mysterious presence of God, but also like our own mysterious presence too lingers in there as well. And I, I just find that to be, uh, I don't know, a unique way to share time together on a Sunday evening. So don't take it for granted that all of us could be somewhere else doing something else and here we are together. And so we're going we're gonna to dive into a, a pretty famous passage in the Gospels, um, one you might be familiar with, and I'm going to try to enter it, though, in maybe a little bit of an unconventional way. Um, as you may or may not be familiar with, uh, we're doing this thing around Kaleo right now called Kaleo School, and it's kind of like a, an intensive five, six-week school where we seek to unlearn and relearn uh, as we make our way through some complex ideas and figure out what Jesus might actually have to say in the world. Not all that different, to be honest, than what we do here on a Sunday, but we've just begun to, to learn about and explore this concept of narrative theology. And, and we've been learning about that from an indigenous perspective. So the ways in which stories are, are told to communicate truths in the world. You know, in our context, it would be like, how do, we, how do we tell stories to help us understand who God is and how God acts in the world and what God might be up to and why that might matter to us at all. And so I actually find that in the, the power of stories, one of my favorite places for those stories is the Gospels. And I think sometimes as Christians or any of us who maybe have been uh, around Christians for a long time, we forget that the Gospels are like these, these stories that were probably told more orally at first before they were written down or it was passed around as people told it, even though it was being recorded. And so I'm going to read our passage from the First, Nation, First Nations translation, which is this really cool translation of the New Testament that, that recently came out, probably about a year or so ago now. And the passage is Matthew 22, 15 through 22. But don't open a Bible yet because you just got to hear it this way first. And then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to look at it uh, a little bit more um, normally, I suppose. All right. The, the title of this story in the First Nations translation is The Separated Ones Attack. The separated ones, that's the Pharisees, began to scheme against creator sets free. That's Jesus. They sent their followers along with some of the friends of Looks Brave, that's the Herodians, to spy on him. Wisdom keeper, they said to him. We know you always speak the truth about the great spirit and represent him well. You show respect to human beings and treat them all the same. Tell us what is right. What should our tribal members pay taxes to the ruler of the people of iron? And should they give them this coin, yes or no? He could see right through them and knew what they were up to. Why are you putting me to the test? I can see behind your false faces, he answered. Show me one of those silver coins you used to pay the tax and let me take a close look at it. They found a silver coin and handed it to him. He took a good look, holding it up to the sky to see it clearly. Then he turned the face of the coin toward them. 
Whose image and words are carved into this coin, he said. The ruler of the people of iron, which is Caesar, they answered. He handed them the coin back and said, Then give to this ruler the things that are his, and give to the great spirit the things that belong to the great spirit. When they heard his answer, they were amazed at his wisdom and hung their heads in silence as they walked away. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are a God who is here with us. We thank you that you meet us in the midst of singing and praying and greeting one another and striving to live generous lives or even just in showing up here. Thank you you're a God who doesn't require us to do anything for you to meet with us, to remind us that we're loved, and to invite us to follow the ways of your son Jesus. I pray that that would be true this evening as well. Open up our heads and our hearts our eyes and our ears to just experience what it is you are up to in this world, God, that we might join you in it. Pray that you'd give me your words to speak, words that are for you and from you and that make much of you. We love you. And in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Matthew 5, or 22, 15 through 22. The New Living Translation begins like this. Then the Pharisees met together to plot how to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. They sent some of their disciples along with the supporters of Herod to meet with him. This is how it all begins. Right? Note how now the Pharisees, which we've heard a bit about in Matthew's gospel, if you track through Matthew's gospel, the Pharisees are kind of like always up to something in conflict with Jesus. They're not always quite seen eye to eye. But on this particular occasion, they have some new teammates. They're conspiring with those who support Herod, which if you don't know anything about Herod, you're like, cool, whatever, right? They just showed up again trying to trap Jesus. We get it. That's what they're doing a bunch of right now. But what does it mean that they've shown up with the Herodians or those that support Herod? This is interesting because the Pharisees, and the Herodians, or those who support Herod, they would not have ever seen eye to eye. They were actually in conflict with one another. They both had a completely different view about how the Jewish people should exist in the Roman society. Right? The Pharisees were trying to rid it of sin and make it what God intended from the beginning, but those who were supporting Herod were like, hey, let's just balance this thing out with Rome. Now they showed up together, which is really, really important because it's never happened before. And here is when it happens. So they meet up and they come up with a plan. And then together, their plan is to trap Jesus. So you got to start to think, because we're getting to this point in Matthew's gospel where Jesus is about to be arrested, where Jesus is about to be crucified. Like it's all about to go down, right? It's been heading that way. We've been looking at it actually even over just the last handful of weeks, right? The, the eye of the hurricane is happening and Jesus is starting to push some buttons and people are starting to move and they're like, we are not good with this guy anymore. So much so that two factions of people who are historically always at odds with one another are like in cahoots to rid the place of Jesus, okay? So think of that now. And they show up because they had to come up with a plan together, and they think they have the plan to trap Jesus. And they say this. They said, teacher, 
We know how honest you are. You teach the way of God truthfully. You are impartial and you don't play favorites. Can you feel like, like they're leading them on a little bit, right? Can you sense that? Don't forget, you have to listen to this like it's the first time you're listening to it, right? He's, then they say, now tell us what you think about this. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, it's this like really interesting part of this whole like false flattery that they offered Jesus up front, right? Because the Pharisees and supporters of Herod are doing just that. They're like, hey, teacher, we know that you are like, you're the most sincere. You teach the ways of God in accordance with all the truth. You don't have any favorites. You are for the people, all people. And what's funny is like, that's about as true a description of Jesus as you could have. And theologian Stanley Hauerwas notes this, liars can speak the truth. But when they do so, those determined to live by the truth must be on their guard. Pretty interesting thought, right? As all of this is, you can feel the tension in this moment, right? They're, they're telling the truth about Jesus, but you've got to figure out why they're telling that truth. So now it's obvious that Matthew is trying to make us pay attention to the way in which they're conniving, right? They're being sneaky. They're trying to play a game here. He announces that the Pharisees met together, right? They got together. So they literally had to have a meeting and they talked about it. The last time the Pharisees met together to trap Jesus was in Matthew 12. And that was after they, that Jesus healed a man's hand in the temple. And they're like, man, this is not going well. It was on the Sabbath. Probably need to prepare now to kill him. We're 10 chapters later. And now they're in partnership with those who support Herod. More ominously in all of this, right, is that those are literally the most unlikely allies that the Pharisees would ever use. So they're actually also saying, I'm going to give up something about what we hold to in order to go after this man, Jesus. But here's the conundrum of what they presented, right? It seems like a basic question. Let me repeat it again in case you haven't put it to memory just yet. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That's the question. Like, we're kind of like, I don't want to pay taxes, right? Like, we're already, we're already kind of in on this for that. But it's not, it's not what it says about. This is more about that Caesar's picture is on the coin, right? So if Jesus says that taxes should not be paid, it'll make him a rebel against Rome, right? It's a pretty good question, actually. Like, they've got him pretty good right now. If he says no taxes, then he's a rebel against Rome. And then it's like... It's over in a second, right? If he says that taxes should be paid, then it'll look like he's on the side of the Herodians, the people who support Herod, who collaborate with Rome, and therefore he won't be a credible prophet. You can't, you can't be a prophet and be like, yeah, but the superpower wins. What's interesting, though, is I think this is like a, a conundrum for our present time as well. Right? It's, it. it's an intriguing story. There's this thing that Jesus is doing and he's forcing us to pay attention to the factions that are in opposition to one another and why and when and where. But what's tied up in this is this sense of ethnocentrism and nationalism. 
is that one group of people has a certain way they're going to maintain themselves, which is the Jewish people saying there's only one way to do this. And in order for them to do that, they're like, I'm willing to get in bed with the national power to do that, even if this power doesn't necessarily have our best interests at mind. So I don't know if you've heard, but there's just a general rise of nationalism in our country too. It's, it's been going on a little bit now, probably 400 years, but we're paying more attention to it recently. And it's this idea, every time nationalism rises, it's this conversation that there is a superior group that should have superior rights that should then be separated from others. Typically what happens is this group of people actually has power and they have the power to push aside those who do not fit into the box that they're saying should have all the rights and is superior to others. The other tricky thing about our present time is a lot of people have been putting a definition or a word in front of nationalism, and it's one that we would care about in this room, and it's the word Christian. They've been saying there's such a thing now as Christian nationalism. And so now they're saying that there's one religion that should be the superior religion, and in order for us to put it into power, we will side with a nation that has typically said a one group of people is actually going to keep the power. And so you can see, it's not, it's not apples to apples the whole way through, but you can see the way in which a religious people or a group of people would say, man, we really need to get our ways rooted down in this place. We're willing to do this by whatever means necessary with the group of people that already have the power to make that happen. Pause there, because the second conversation about nationalism has surfaced recently as well. In the wake of the conflict in which Hamas attacked Israel, followed by Israel then unleashing death-dealing and attacks in Gaza in an effort to then wipe out Palestinians. These are actually military moves steeped in nationalism, and many are actually now calling the moons from Israel very much genocidal moons from a nationalistic perspective, that we are the one nation and we must rid ourselves of the other people who are impeding on our nation nationalism. I think, this isn't all of what Jesus is saying, but I think it's some of what Jesus is saying, to misunderstand the powers of nationalism is often to allow the voice of the oppressed to be drowned out and then ultimately destroyed. When nationalism gains power, it will seek to wipe out those they deem as other. And we could have a wide array of views about nationalism, the conflict between Israel and Palestine, Hamas. But I think collectively we would say the way of Jesus is for the multi-ethnic family of God to flourish. And the most anti-nationalism movement in the scriptures is in Acts 2 when the spirit falls and the fullness of what God has actually set out to do, we finally see it, is that every tribe and tongue is filled with the Spirit of God to be together, to be unified, to be one, to speak up on behalf of one another. Amen. 
So that is the most anti-nationalistic movement around. But Jesus is just trying to get people to pay attention to it right now. And we know how it ends for Jesus, which is interesting to think about. Because these two factions actually play a big part in Jesus being killed. Still, I think it can be difficult to understand the implications of these Jewish religious leaders joining forces with the supporters of Herod. Right? Like the, these are, these are the, the Pharisees were, right? They're not all, we do this thing where we're like all Pharisees equal bad, right? That's not true. They were, they were trying to get the most pure version of their religion to the forefront because that's when they believed the Messiah would come. And so now, these fully committed to this way, people, they choose the people who are actually trying to eradicate them, push them out, but they're all of Jewish descent. So Josephus, there's this famous Jewish-Roman historian of the same generation as Jesus. He's often commenting on things that were happening at the time that help us understand from another perspective what's going on as we read the Gospels in particular. He comments that the Pharisees cooperated with the aristocracy, especially when grave national interests were at stake, providing an essential coalition between populist and institutional leadership. So when it was beneficial for them, they would step outside of what they actually were about in order to see this through because there was a great thing at stake. And in this particular moment, it's Jesus. And that's who they're up against. So scholar Craig Keener says it kind of like this. He says the coalition here, that's the, the group of them, right? They hope to catch Jesus coming or going. To say it again, he will either support taxes to, to Rome, which will undercut his popular messianic support, won't be a prophet, or he will challenge taxes, thereby aligning him with the views that had sparked a disastrous revolt two decades earlier. This had already been tried. The revolution had already tried to come about, and it was put down, and people died. So the implications are this. In this latter case, the Herodians could charge him with being a revolutionary, which he stands in the line of revolutionaries in some sense, doesn't he? Like, this is not as it should be, is typically what revolutionaries are trying to say. And if that's true, then he should be executed and executed quickly. Indeed, Keener says, given his defiance of the temple authorities and the growing following, his opponents undoubtedly felt they had good reason to suspect him of just such sentiments. And they were mostly right. Jesus just had more to say than what to do with a coin. So, here's how Jesus responds. Jesus knew their evil motives. Hold on, pause. Jesus knew their evil motives. I think sometimes we give that statement too much credit, like Jesus is reading everybody's mind. I mean, it just took us like, we just had to unpack a little bit of the history and we're like, I know their motives, right? Like we're, we're tracking here. So Jesus could tell, like he was, he was pretty discerning and he's like, oh, I can see what y'all are up to. You're trying to get me killed. Right? It wasn't like he had some mind-reading power in that sense. Right? 
He did have a lot of intuition by way of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so Jesus knew their evil motives. Here's what he says. You hypocrites, he said. Why are you trying to trap me? Here, show me the coin you used for the tax. This, this is the ultimate move, by the way. He says, here, show me the coin. When they handed him a Roman coin, which means what? That they had a Roman coin. When they handed him the coin, he asked, whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well then, he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. His reply amazed them and they went away. Now, did Jesus have one of these coins? No. Maybe because it had the image of Caesar. Very, very much could have been a reason. That was actually why a lot of Jewish people did not have these coins and tried to keep away from them in general. They got looped into a system that made them pay with such coins that went against this idea of having the image of someone else, another God. But Jesus did not have a coin. And it's pretty wild that this is what he throws at them. In light of all that we know has transpired up to this point and all the ways they've tried to trap him and all the things that Jesus has been saying and what we know that's going to transpire and happen to Jesus. And in this moment, he just does this little word play, right? Takes the coin that they give him, who's here? They answer the question because Jesus just keeps asking questions back. And then he's like, well, then you should probably give that to Caesar. And if you have anything that belongs to God, you should give it to God. And I think it's wild that they walked away amazed at his response because it wasn't just religious leaders who walked away. It was also those who support Herod and the Roman Empire. We're all like, frick, this guy, what a weasel. Like he's getting out of it again. So he says, right, to give to Caesar what was Caesar's was just to return the coin to him. Like the coin had no standing to Jesus, which is fitting because Jesus was poor. Jesus didn't have anywhere to sleep. Who paid for Jesus? A handful of women. I don't talk about that enough either. We'll do that sermon another day too. Right? He didn't have a coin with him. So he says, give it to Caesar's. But then he says, give to God what is God's, right? To render to God what was God's was to render worship to God alone. But that's an interesting thing because we start talking about worship in any of our Christian contexts. So like, what does that actually mean? What does worship mean, right? Was he just saying, take this coin, set it aside, and let's all like fall to our knees here and praise? No, worship is a way to live, that the entirety of your being is about the way of God that they already said they knew he taught about, and they weren't doing it. And he realized in that moment that they weren't. That's why they walk away amazed in silence. Surrender to God what is God's implied all of what one was and what one possessed. The things that are not of God in your being and in your possession, release them to God. That's the invitation that Jesus has here. So now we have to ask, like, what is Jesus inviting us to let go of? What does that mean in our lives? 
What is it like to have a coin of the empire in our pocket? Okay, hold those thoughts. Because the way Jesus has responded deserves a tiny bit more interrogation. Because some things are happening here that aren't going to make this answer clear. That's why I want you to hold the thought. What, it, what is worship really about? What is surrendering about? I, hold on. Because Jesus hasn't done this thing that they thought he was going to do. He hasn't compromised his support. Rather, he's just embarrassed his challengers. Which is actually, again, funny. Because Jesus doesn't play those games. Right? It turns out they and not he are carrying the offensive coin that has Caesar's image on it. So it can't actually be them who has an issue with it. That's the ploy. They make you think it's about this, but it's actually not about this. So in light of all of this, right, as well as their shallow flattery when they pretend that he speaks the way of God in truth, they rightly earn the title that he gives them. How does he start this whole thing? You hypocrites. He hasn't even played the game with them yet, but he calls them hypocrites at the beginning. Which, again, if you've grown up in Christian context, is like the ultimate diss, right? Like if, you, if you're a church and someone's like, you're such a hypocrite. Like it's, that's how we use it. And so it's just what Jesus said, right? Jesus says it. But what he says, when he says it, he says this. He's, what he means is that they're literally wearing a mask pretending to be something and someone to gain an advantage. He calls that out. He says, this is, you are not here about a coin. You are trying to pretend. You've given me this flattery, this statement, because you're trying to gain an advantage over me. So let's simplify it once more. Jesus then told them that they should give to God the things that are God's and to the emperor the things that are the emperor's. And when they heard this answer, they were amazed and left him. Which would have been like the wildest thing to see, I feel like. I feel like, what just happened? I don't know, was he just like standing there by himself then? There are people around, right? Stanley Hauerwas, again, he's a theologian who offers some commentary on this he's kind of like writing about this and when he gets he's like hold on but wait they left but wait let me let me tell you what's happening here he seems to be saying he's trying to make it urgent he's trying to make it practical he's trying to make it present he says urgently pay attention to this through much of christian history he says it's unfortunate but christians have not been amazed by this answer Rather, they have assumed that they know what Jesus meant when he said we are to give to the emperor what is the emperor's and to God what is God's. And we're like, yeah, okay. Chill, Stan, right? Tell us a little more then. He says this. He says, it is assumed that Christians are a people of a double loyalty to God and the state. Christians are told that they should never let their loyalty to the state qualify their loyalty to God. This, this is what Jesus is getting at, right? Keep, keep letting that percolate. But they never seem clear when and if such a conflict might actually happen. Right? So he's saying, unfortunately for Christians, we think we know what this means. And we know that it means we can't have allegiance to God and allegiance to the state or the power. And we're like, yeah, that's what it means until it actually happens. 
And then Christians tend to not know what that means. And Stanley Hauerwas says, Christians are usually Herodians, but lack the means to recognize themselves as such. And that quote, just by itself as an interpretation of this passage, we could just slap it on the last 10 years in our country. When I wrote it out, I was like, woof. Because that's not us sitting in this room going, yeah, them. That's us going, hold on. Hold on. So here's how Howard Watts parses it out a little bit more. I'm just going to keep sharing his full thoughts because he says it best. Christians are usually Herodians but lack the means to recognize themselves as such. He says that God and the emperor cannot both be served is, moreover, not solved when the emperor is said to be of the people. So now he's digging in. Because like if we just get the emperor we want to run the emperor from the people, wow. He says the people often turn out to be more omnivorous, he says, and their desire for our loyalty than emperors. The people are like, no, give your loyalty to the people. Because Jesus is still not one calling loyalty to people or an emperor, but to God. It's like a triangle happening here, right? He says, nor is the problem of loyalty to God and Caesar solved by the separation of church and state. Why? Because that separation too often results in legitimating the state to do what it wants while sequestering the church into the mythical realm of the private. The church must speak in to the way in which we live in this world and what's at play. That's literally why come and join us on November 30th for Rising Justice with Corazon. He says, moreover, Christian accommodation to play the game dictated by Caesar's coin ensures that the separation between state and church actually makes Christians faithful servants of states that allegedly give the church freedom. The powers are saying, if you just support us, we'll make you free. And if that's not also a conversation that we've been having nationally for the last decade or more. We're tracking so far. Okay. Hauerwas finishes like this. He says, for many, this account of Jesus' claim that we are to give the emperor what is the emperor's and to God what is God's creates an insoluble problem. An insoluble problem is an unsolvable problem. To give to Caesar what is Caesar's and God's to what is God's creates an unsolvable problem. Why? Because we do not see how followers of Jesus can then live in the world as we know it. And we're like, oh, then what is he talking about? To recognize that we have an unsolvable problem, Hauerwas says, is to begin to follow Jesus. He says, Jesus' response to the Pharisees and Herodians does create an insoluble problem. And that's what it's meant to do. And he just didn't sort all the things out at the end of that, right? It created an unsolvable problem. And Hauerwas says, you know you have a problem, at least if you are a disciple of Jesus, when you do not have a problem. So if you are following Jesus and you don't have a problem, 
then he says that's the problem. Because Jesus, as he's revealing and the way in which he handles this whole coin exchange is revealing that he is not a man of the status quo. He's not a man of the powerful. He's not a man of the rich. He's not a man of the empire. He is saying he is something other than that. And to give allegiance to him is to actually put you in an unsolvable situation because the kingdom has not come in its fullness yet. And we don't know how to stand like this with two feet in both of these worlds. And so if we, right now, in this present place, in this present room, those of us who call Kaleo, type of people we want to be a part of, if we really do seek to practice the ways of Jesus as the multi-ethnic family of God, then we also need to ask, do we have a problem? And to be fair, I think we have lots of them. And I think we talk about them a lot. I think we move to eradicate them a lot. I think we organize. I think we pray. I think we act consistently. I think that we have done a great job of nurturing that reality in our community. But I think when reevaluating and evaluating and looking inward and being introspective and saying there's not just one way for things to be happening, we have to keep asking ourselves as we follow Jesus, do we have a problem? Or is there a problem that we're missing? Is there a problem that we have not seen yet? Have the powers of the world, however you want to think of them, been duping us in some way or another, giving us false flattery? Like, you're doing it. You're doing great. But really, here's the question. What would you give to God if you could? Before I just let us sit with that, I, I, I want to try to invite us to the the question, do we have a problem, is a communal evaluation, I suppose. I think for so long, I personally have experienced such a thing as just this individual deal, right? If you would, if you would just figure out how to worship God and not, you know, worship something else, then things are good. But I think we learn it in community. I think we become it in community. And I think God's presence manifests itself via community in ways that are different than our tendency towards individualizing it. So it starts there, yes. And sometimes I think it literally just starts by like showing up in places where you're going to have to think about it and pray about it and talk about it, wrestle with it. And so we just give Jesus the final word in our time together because one, Jesus doesn't provide anything in terms of a solution and all of this. He just, as Hauerwas has created an unsolvable problem and now we sit here with it. But we sit here with a God who's with us. A God who speaks, a God who moves, a God who acts, a God who's able. We don't always feel it, we don't always know it, but it is still true. And that's when sometimes we sit in community together and we say, God, do we have a problem? All right. Tell us, God, what that is, and let's move. We want to go there. We want to be there. So here's, and stop talking. I want to just give Jesus the final word. So just let's be still in the presence of God, whatever that might mean for you. Maybe ask the question, do we have a problem? What is the problem? What do you want to say to me, God? What do you want me to know about all this? We'll just be still and pray for a few moments, and then I'll take us from there.
For more resources or information about Kaleo, please visit our website at kaleophx.com or follow us on social media. If this episode has been helpful to you, let us know or share it with someone you know.